Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. I want you to think about fashion for a moment. Fashion is one of the most disposable of all the artistic endeavors. Much of what's created isn't designed to last more than a single season, and once the season is over, it's time to toss out all the old couture and buy new stuff. But there are cycles in fashion. After a certain amount of time, old styles might come back into favor again. This, in a way, makes fashion a renewable resource, almost. Music is also like that. Trends and sounds and styles come along and then disappear. But then, 10, 15, 20 or more years later, those trends, those sounds, those styles are resurrected by a brand new generation. Sometimes the kids rediscover the joys and appeal of a certain type of music independently. Or maybe they got into some older records and were inspired by that. But whatever the reason, it's, you know, anything to keep from being bored, right? If you were around in the early to mid-90s, you may remember a period when every week seemed to bring along something new and cool, a, a new band with a new sound and a new attitude, and this stuff was coming at us from all directions. North America had developed a massive appetite for all things alternative, led by grunge. In fact, grunge threatened to completely swamp rock music worldwide, including the UK. But some young musicians would have none of this musical imperialism from the colonies. They decided to fight back with a real made-in-Britain approach. And the result was fantastic. And until the whole thing collapsed under its own weight of excess and overexposure and drugs, it was a most excellent party. This is part four of our look back at the alt-rock of the 1990s. The topic? Britpop. This is the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is Chapter 4 at this look at the 1990s, and we're going to focus on the British Isles in general, and England in particular. Every once in a while, we end up with a perfect cultural storm, a time when musical, social, political, and demographics all come together at exactly the right time. The result can be a trend and sound and style that captures everybody's imagination, and it can be really, really exciting. These storms last about six years. The first two are the build-up, then there's a frenzied peak that lasts 12 to 18 months, and finally we have the long, slow denouement, when the party breaks up, leaving just the stragglers passed out on the floor. Think of the Beatles from 64 to 70. Think of punk rock from 76 to 82. Think of grunge from 90 to 96. And now think of Britpop, an era when the sun once again never seemed to set on the British Empire. This party ran from about 1991 to 1997. London was swinging again. British acts were selling tens of millions of albums the world over, and we're still feeling the repercussions today. The origins of Britpop are rooted in young musicians playing defense. Like I said at the beginning, the waves of music coming east across the Atlantic threatened to swamp what was going on in the UK. Her Majesty's Empire needed to be saved from the grunge marauders, the proud tradition of British rock and roll, the Beatles, the Stones, Led Zeppelin, Sex Pistols, Clash, Bowie. It all needed to be saved from the likes of Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden. Now, to be fair, this wasn't so much an invasion as it was music rushing in to fill a vacuum. 
Following the decline of the club and rave culture of the 1980s, there was this big void in British music. The Manchester scene, featuring the Stone Roses and the Happy Mondays, was pretty much over. Shoegaze had failed to ignite the masses, and any attempts to revitalize the dance scene really wasn't going anywhere. This made the British music press desperate. Now, the whole reason for their existence was to discover and propagate new sounds and scenes. They needed something to write about. And remember, there were dozens of these publications, some putting out issues every week. They were only too happy to embrace what the Yanks were going on about. The American invasion did not sit well with the generation of British musicians. They not only felt ignored by their own country and their own media, but rejected. This would not do. So, a few of these young Brits decided to do something about the situation. The very first signs of what we would eventually call Britpop appeared in 1992 with a band called Suede. While most of the UK was mad for grunge, Suede would have none of that rot. Instead, Suede celebrated the great eccentric English rock of the 70s and 80s. David Bowie, Roxy Music, T-Rex, Smiths, Morrissey, British Psych, Jagger Swagger, Glam Guitars. And singer Brett Anderson played up the part of this dandy English fop, proudly singing in a London accent. This was definitely not grunge. Released on September 14, 1992, that's Suede with Metal Mickey, the second single from their 1992 self-titled album. It's hard to describe how different that song sounded to English ears. Those sharp, slashing guitars, the glamness of it all, and the undisguised accent. It was fresh, but it was also familiar. Singer Brett Anderson was determined to evoke memories of classic British rock from the early 1970s. It was musical nationalism that had some undeniable appeal. Another guy who was really upset about all those British kids wearing flannel shirts was Damon Albarn of Blur. He was also very jealous of how Suede had carved a niche for themselves while Blur continued to struggle creatively. They were stuck in some kind of post-Manchester creative funk, which just wasn't working for them or anyone else for that matter. So, after a good think, Damon and Blur basically decided to adopt a new mission statement. Let me quote, if punk was about getting rid of hippies, he said, then I'm getting rid of grunge. People should smarten up, be a bit more energetic. They're walking around like hippies again. They're stooped. They've got greasy hair. There's no difference. Whether they like it or not, they're listening to Black Sabbath again. It irritates me. This made for some very good copy in the British music papers, which were slowly getting tired of what American was yapping about. And something seemed to build in the winter of 1993-94. It was very small at first. Like-minded people began to gather in places like The Good Mixer, which is a pub in Camden. On Oxford Street, there was a regular Thursday night thing at a venue called Syndrome. There was a new monthly magazine called Select, which began to devote many, many pages to this new generation of homegrown indie bands. Another magazine called The Face began to do the same. And the weekly papers, The Enemy and Melody Maker, really got quite worked up about everything. And then something happened that no one could have expected. In April 1994, Kurt Cobain killed himself. The death of grunge's biggest star brought all that momentum that grunge had almost to a dead stop. 
In fact, all of North American alt-rock was shaken by Kurt's passing. We didn't know what to do, how to react, or how to move on. But across the Atlantic, this opened the door for everything that happened in British rock for the next several years, because it created another vacuum. With American-bred rock now suddenly on the decline, or at least mired in confusion, sadness, and doubt, British bands once again had a chance to exert some kind of influence. And who was just waiting to be sucked into all this? Blur. Right place, right time, right album. Just 17 days after Kurt died, they released a career-altering and game-changing, not to mention a very, very British album, called Park Life. I put my trousers on, have a cup of tea, and I think about leaving the house. I feed the pigeons, I sometimes feed the sparrows too. It gives me a sense of enormous well-being. And then I'm happy for the rest of the day. Safe in the knowledge there will always be a bit of my heart devoted to it. Now that is a pretty British-sounding song. The guest vocalist is actor Phil Daniels, the guy who starred as Jimmy in the film version of The Who's Quadrophenia. No disguising that accent or avoiding the use of British-isms like Dustman. Maybe that attitude, which can be felt throughout the entire Park Life album, is why it had such a multi-generational appeal. After it was released on April 25th, 1994, it was embraced by everyone from indie hipsters to mums and dads. Something about the Englishness of it all. Into this breach stepped Oasis. Hype had been building about them through 1993 and early 1994. A couple of singles hinted at something new and fresh, yet extremely familiar. There was something so Beatles, so Rolling Stones about them that Oasis felt comforting. It also didn't hurt that Oasis made for great press. Outrageous comments, fights in public, arrests, drugs, being banned from various places, even deportations from entire countries. They seemed like a dangerous gang, more than a rock band. And they were from Manchester, not London. This was a violent wind coming from the north. But that wind would have just been a bunch of hot air if the music had been rubbish, but it wasn't. Their debut album, Definitely Maybe, was a sensation, and there's no other way to describe it. It showed up in stores on August the 30th of 1994, just as Blur's Park Life was at its peak. It went straight to number one and became the fastest-selling debut album of all time in the UK. Oi, people said, there's another bunch of lads that sound just as good. Very English, they are. Let's put on that record when we're down at the pub. Oasis and Live Forever, the third of five songs taken from their debut album, Definitely Maybe. Noel Gallagher had had that song in his back pocket, having written it before he launched his coup and took over his little brother's band. Now here's something really important. Compare the optimism found in that song with what was happening with grunge. All that gloom and pessimism and darkness and death. Noel was particularly annoyed at Nirvana for writing a song like I Hate Myself and Want to Die. And I quote, seems to me here was a guy who had everything, was miserable about it. And we had F all. And I still thought that getting up in the morning was the greatest effing thing ever because you didn't know where you'd end up at night. And we didn't have a pot to piss in, but it was effing great, man. The album came out in August 1994, 
right in the middle of summer. Perfect. And let's not forget that release of Oasis singles were timed perfectly around whatever Blur was doing. That only served to reinforce the Britishness of the indie scene, which, by the way, was suddenly where all the action was. As we got to the end of 1994, three bands dominated the British scene. Oasis, Blur, and Suede. It was great. But things were just getting ready to explode. You're listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. This is part four of a comprehensive look at everything that happened in alt-rock in the 1990s. And we're well into this review of the whole Britpop thing. Here's when we should probably talk about where the word Britpop came from. Now, in retrospect, it makes all kinds of sense. British pop, right? Generic enough to be an umbrella term, but also evocative of a certain sound and attitude. The first appearance of the word seems to have been in The Face, one of those new British magazines that I mentioned earlier. There was an interview with Blur in the May 1994 issue, riffing on the band's view of how time had come for a renewed emphasis on British pop. The magazine then abbreviated that to Britpop. A few months after that, the Guardian newspaper, commenting on a new nationalistic renaissance in music, also used the word. But the real tipping point seemed to come in an issue of the NME in January 1995. And after that, everyone was using the word Britpop to describe what was going on. In addition to heavy coverage of Blur, Oasis, and Suede, the British music media felt duty-bound to uncover and anoint more candidates for homegrown superstardom. And suddenly, nothing seemed to be more important than that. A favorite target of coverage became Elastica, featuring Justine Frischman out front. Not only was she a former member of Suede, but she was also a former girlfriend of Brent Anderson of Suede and Damon Albarn's current girlfriend. So how perfect was this? Britpop now had an official first couple. And it didn't hurt that Elastica's debut album was also fresh, fun, and very good. Line Up, a single by Elastica from their self-titled debut album. The song came out in January 1994, more than a year before the album came out. Here's a list of some of the people at the Britpop party. Shed 7, Echo Belly, Dodgy, Gene, Supergrass, Menswear, Cast, Ocean Color Scene, Sleeper, Salad, Whiteout, Marion, Northern Uproar, Ash, These Animal Men, Black Grape. Coverage of this music was non-stop in print, on the radio, and on TV. Paparazzi were everywhere. Gossip was everywhere. Even America's Vanity Fair magazine felt compelled to do a feature story on Cool Britannica and Swing in London. The party started to peak in the summer of 1995, and the best part was the war between Blur and Oasis. What began as a friendly sort of rivalry mushroomed into a full-on war. Now, from the media's point of view, it couldn't possibly get any better. In one corner, Blur, articulate defenders of the realm and diarists of modern British culture. Middle class, slightly posh, from London. In the other corner, Oasis, foul-mouthed, hard-drinking, drug-taking yobs from the North, who were always acting if you just spilled their pint. Just like the Beatles versus Stones rivalry of the 60s, right? Well, not really, because that was a gentleman's game. The Beatles and the Stones were actually mates. Blur versus Oasis was a full-on war. 
and it all came to a head in August of 1995. That's when Blur announced that they would release their much-anticipated follow-up to Park Life, September 11, 1995. And Standard Protocol dictated that the first single from the album would come out three weeks earlier, and it was called Country House. Meanwhile, Oasis was ready with their second album. It was set for release in early October, preceded by the first single in mid-September, and it was called Roll With It. Okay, this was all nice and orderly. The two biggest bands in the land would each have a chance to have a single debut at number one. Everybody would get good press, everybody would make money, everybody would be happy. But then Oasis said, no, we've decided that we're going to release our single in mid-August. Uh, what's that? Oh, our date is seven days before Blur's? Oh, too bad. Blur fired back by moving up the release date of Country House by seven days to exactly the same day Oasis planned to unleash Roll With It. So here we go. The two hottest, biggest, most hyped up bands since the Beatles and the Stones were going head to head, same day, same week, and there could only be one number one. And the best part of it all? The bands hated each other. Blur's record company and Oasis record label pulled out all the stops. The media coverage was nonstop. All the papers, all the magazines, all the radio stations, bookies took bets. Everybody took sides. It was London versus the North. Even the staid BBC was mad for it. Two of Britain's most popular pop groups have begun the biggest chart war in 30 years. The Manchester band Oasis and their arch rivals Blur released new singles today, each hoping to reach the number one spot next week. Both Country House and Roll With It came out on August 14, 1995. The frenzy was so crazy that record sales across Britain were up 41% for that week. And when the final numbers were added up on Sunday, August the 20th, the winner was Blur. While Oasis sold 216,000 copies of Roll With It, Blur sold 274,000 copies of Country House. Yes, Blur, the winners of the epic Britpop showdown of August 1995. But when it came to the overall war, Oasis would be the overall winner. Blur's Country House entered the charts at number one and was certified triple platinum in the UK within a year, which is very nice. Proud achievement. The Oasis album, which was What's the Story Morning Glory, came out on schedule on October 2nd, 1995. On that day, it sold a copy at the rate of one every two minutes. Within a week, it had sold 350,000 copies in Britain alone, making it the fastest-selling British album ever to that point. And while The Great Escape, the Blur album, ended up at about number 150 on the American charts, Morning Glory exploded, selling 200,000 copies in America in a week. It has since sold more than 20 million copies. And songs like this are now all-time classics. Today was gonna be the day, but they'll never throw it back to you. By now, you should have somehow realized what you're not to do. I don't believe that anybody feels the way I do about you now. Oasis, who, for a time, were the biggest band on the planet, thanks to their What's the Story Morning Glory album. 
and on the whole, Britpop itself could not possibly get any bigger. And you know what that means, right? There's only one direction to go after that. Down. Now, back to the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. This is a look back at the Britpop era, and we're now coming up towards the end of 1995. Blur and Oasis are huge. Suede has crept back onto the scene. Elastica is doing just fine. And there's one other band that we have to mention, and that's Pulp. Jarvis Cocker founded Pulp in Sheffield in 1978. They languished in obscurity for a decade and a half, not even as a footnote to anything in British music. But then they seemingly came out of nowhere with a solid record in 1994 called His and Hers, and it did fine well enough to be called something of a breakthrough. But then came the next record. It was called Different Class, and it came out about a month after Oasis and Morning Glory. Now, the notion of class has always permeated British society. And when people heard the first single from the album, it reached them in all the right ways. The song was based on an actual experience Jarvis Cocker had with a fellow student at St. Martin's College of Art and Design. Her name was Sophia Foca. That's the legend, anyway. She was from a well-off family who seemed to be interested in slumming with her schoolmates. Jarvis took her attitude, embellished it a bit for artistic sake, and, uh, well, it was a hit. You want to live like common people. You want to see whatever common people see. Want to sleep with common people. You want to sleep with common people like me But she didn't understand And she just smiled and held my hand Pulp and Common People, another huge hit for Britpop in the summer of 1995. And the party just kept going and going and going. The biggest single event at that party had to be the two Oasis shows at a place called Nebworth on August 10th and 11th, 1996. In a little over two years, Oasis had gone from literally nothing, total unknowns, to performing in front of 125,000 people per night. Demand was so strong for these shows that one in every 20 British citizens tried to get tickets. The guest list, the guest list, reportedly had 7,000 names on it. VIPs were given their own Oasis-branded binoculars. The show was so big that there were 3,000 crew members. And I repeat, Oasis got that big in two years with two albums. That's Beatles-level crazy. Oasis from their second night at Nebworth, August 11th, 1996. Like I said, the Britpop party could not get any bigger. Therefore, it had to end sometime. And it did. Like I said at the beginning, these perfect cultural musical storms tend to last for about six years. Despite the Oasis triumph at Nebworth, it became apparent that Britpop was actually getting a little wobbly. First of all, everybody was starting to lose focus. Every single indie label was throwing bands against the wall, hoping and praying that one of them would be the next Blur or Oasis. And if we're honest, a lot of them weren't very good. Second, everyone else was being criminally overexposed. 
Oasis was in the press constantly, and it seemed as Oasis went, so did the entire British music industry. It even got to the point that Noel's then-wife, Meg Matthews, had her shopping sprees detailed in the daily papers, and when that wasn't enough, she was given her own column where she wrote about her excess. Third, it was soon time for the major players to release new albums, follow-ups. Blur needed a strong follow-up to The Great Escape. And what could Oasis possibly do to exceed Morning Glory? And fourth, and this is something that no one really wanted to talk about, was all the heroin and all the cocaine. What was that doing to everyone? Drug use was rampant, and it was starting to take its toll, not only amongst musicians, but in the industry in general. The first concrete indication that something wasn't right was the Be Here Now album, the third record from Oasis. The alcohol and cocaine budgets for this album were astronomical. The songs were too long, the melodies uninspired, and the record was just too thick with unnecessary layers of guitars. It sounded kind of shrill to a lot of people. And that's because cocaine messes with your ability to hear high frequencies. To normal ears, it was a bit screechy at the high end. But it sounded fine to Noel. But here's the most important bit. No one was willing to tell Oasis to go back and do anything again. When you get to be that successful, everybody, including the record label, is afraid to do anything that might screw things up. So, Noel was allowed to do as he saw fit. But even if this had been a better record, it would have still collapsed under the hype. There was no way that it could live up to anyone's expectation. After Be Here Now faded into the background, Noel admitted that the album really wasn't very good. Here's the quote. I wasn't prepared to make things any better. I'd get to a certain point and say, screw it, that's good enough. We made the record to justify the drug habit. I was making the record to justify spending thousands on drugs. While drugs were a huge issue for Oasis, they were an even bigger problem for Elastica. Most of the band had managed to acquire heavy heroin habits, including leader Justine Frischman. They couldn't get it together long enough to write a second album, let alone record it. Meanwhile, Justine and Damon Albarn broke up, mostly over drug problems. Britpop's first couple were no more. And that, of course, wasn't good. And then another weird twist of fate. Tony Blair was elected prime minister. Back in university, he played in a rock band, and he loved Britpop. He even invited people like Noel Gallagher around to 10 Downing Street for a chat and a glass of wine. Really nice for Tony, but very bad optics for Noel. All it said was that this music of the people had been co-opted by the establishment and the government. Finally, there was the big blur pivot. Damon Albarn's stunning aesthetic reversal. Now, remember how he had led the charge against the foreign grunge imperialists by replacing American alternative rock with music that was proudly British? By 1997, he'd had a change of heart. Damon had become fascinated by lo-fi American alternative music from bands like Pavement and the Pixies. He was also getting deeper into obscure German progressive rock from the 1970s and several forms of music from sub-Saharan Africa. And he began to hang out less in London and more in places like Iceland, where things were much different. This manifested itself for all to hear in February 1997, when Blur cleared the decks with a self-titled CD that signaled a new sonic path. This was not Britpop. Yeah. 
Blur and their massive international hit Song 2 from 1997. By the time the year was over, everybody was distancing themselves from anything to do with Britpop. The party was over, and the hangover was bad. The drugs had taken their toll, and the public and the media were bored. It was all Spice Girls and Girl Power and Wannabe. And this was right on schedule. About six years had gone by, and the wave was over. Oasis stuck together, but were in their own bubble that allowed them to continue for another decade. Blur broke up for a while before reforming for big money. Elastica evaporated, and Pulp went on an indefinite hiatus. Then a crop of new bands popped up. Radiohead, for example. Although they coexisted with Britpop for a couple of years, they were somehow outside that scene. And when they released OK Computer in 1997, they showed that they were on a different planet altogether. Then there was Coldplay. They came along too late for Britpop, lucky for them, but had a sound that had some wide appeal that exploded into another massive British export. Britpop, though, was done, consigned to the history books, just like grunge and techno-pop. Its influence would live along with all the myths and legends and stories, but all things must pass, you know? But damn, it was good while it lasted. Back in a moment with a look ahead to Chapter 5 of this series on the 1990s. More of the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. On the next episode of this multi-part series on the alt-rock of the 1990s, we need to look at how hip-hop figures into the equation. Now, we may not have realized it at the time, but hip-hop was infiltrating culture to such an extent that a decade later, it was well on its way to supplanting rock as the prime cultural driver when it comes to music. And what we're going to do in the next show is look at how alt-rock was co-opted on hip-hop's way to world domination. Meanwhile, all these shows in this series are available as podcasts. You can get those for free whenever you download your on-demand audio. I also have a website called ajournalofmusicalthings.com. I update it with all kinds of music information every day. And if it helps, there's a free daily newsletter that goes along with it. You should subscribe, seriously. And we can always connect on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Google+. All email can go to alan at alancross.ca. Chapter 5, The Hip Hop Factor, next time on our look at the 1990s. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast at iTunes and through Google Play. 